We're continuing our Advent theme. Last week I was saying that Advent is uh, historically something that's associated with um, traditional churches, if we wanted to say that. Uh, so we are borrowing it a little bit because it is useful, though, because Advent um, was uh, the word taken from the Latin, Adventus, which was actually the translation of um, the word that we are used to knowing as parousia in the Greek in the New Testament, which speaks of the coming presence of the Lord. And we mostly would use that word in association with the Lord's future return uh, for the church, the body of Christ, and uh, ultimately his return to earth. So his coming back, his parousia. But it's the sense uh, in our meditations in Isaiah 9 in particular uh, for last week, this week, and next week, it's thinking of the Lord who has come already, his presence to be with us, but also looking forward and anticipating the return that is yet to happen when he will come for us. So we are touched by the fact that the Lord has come, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence has come to be with us and that has made a massive impact in our experience and it's our prayer that it makes an ex a massive impact on the lives of people that we know. And it then touches us in the matter of our expectation also of the one who is coming back for us. Let's take our reading from Isaiah 9 and... Uh, We'll say something uh, from Isaiah 9 again today. Our focus is going to be on the name uh, that's articulated here in the prophecy that was given to Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was writing 740 years or so before the birth of the one we know as Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah. Isaiah 9 verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. <clears throat> in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea. On the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land. The light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden. And the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the one who is over as commander, over innumerable angels and also over his people. The Lord and his zeal will accomplish something for his people in their brokenness that is articulated here. Last week we were thinking about the light that was shining in this very message and the promise, not just of the, the light in the message, but the, the light that would come in the person, the child that's referenced in Isaiah 7 and then would come in fulfillment, full fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're brought to in Isaiah 9. This walking in darkness, breaking into that will come one, who brings the light of God. 
God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That speaks of the holiness and the perfection of our God. And he in his mercy and grace and love for us steps into the darkness that's of our doing, our sin. That he might bring light into our experience. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. But I want us to move on to understanding why this light bursts in to the experience of people who will accept and receive the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. And because from verses 3 onwards, <clears throat> and what we've read here in Isaiah 9, we're, we're told of the joy of the people who will come to know the results of the work of the one, the child, who was coming. You'll notice here that you'll multiply the nation. This is attributed to God. This is something that Isaiah had an understanding of. He says, you'll multiply the nation. There's prosperity there. There's numerical increase. There's the extending of borders. Uh, something that was for the promise uh, of God's people. It was taking them back to the promises that had been made by God to them. So it's the fulfill fulfillment of God's promises. You'll, you'll multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. So there'll be an increase in joy. And that's as a consequence of the child who's coming and for who he is and what his name tells us of who he is. And that gladness is a gladness because of his presence. Did you notice that? They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. Now, we're going back to an agrarian culture here. Remember this, where everything um, was centered on uh, their crops coming in every year. As God had said it would for them to have enough to survive the winter months and into the spring until they would sow again and then they would start their, uh, their reaping process. So there was this continual need to receive from God via the land the blessing of God. And that's no wonder why God says to his people that they were to come up with their hands filled with the things he'd given them on three occasions. Um, and it was all to do with the time of harvest. They were to come and say thank you to God for what he'd given them. So the gladness here is a gladness because of what God has given. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. We'll come to that in a moment. So the gladness, the joy, is in the very presence of the one who has come, who has been given by God himself. So we are to have our joy and find our joy in the one given, who is God himself. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, that speaks of victory and overcoming because the spoil is something that you would uh, take from a defeated enemy and you would take from them the things of the riches that you would have and add that to, to what you receive. So this is full of glorious blessing, the increase of the nation, uh, the sense of joy. It's a joy like when you've, you've gathered in that which is going to provide for you for the next few months. It's the joy of the presence of God, recognizing he's behind it all. And it's this gladness and rejoicing that you've received something through victory that actually has not been achieved by yourself notice that then in verse 4 <clears throat> it goes on to say you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian now that takes the people to whom this was originally written um, the Jews um, the faithful ones in Judah and Benjamin and of the tribe of Levi in the time when Isaiah was writing and speaking these things to them. It would take them right back in their thinking to Gideon 
with his army whittled down to the 300 as they would go out at God's command against the Midianites with lamps in their jars and they wouldn't even have to use their weapons. They would just sound and shout and sound their trumpets and break uh, those jars and the light would shine and God sent a confusion amongst the amassed army of the Midianites and they were scattered and they killed themselves in the confusion. <coughs> That's a reference back to that. It's a victory that God brought. Gideon and his men, what did they do? And they didn't let the light shine. And God gave them the victory. A little lessons for us all the time in all of this. But the, the result of all of this, one of the consequences is that the oppression that the people were knowing here because of the ill-advised and um, wrong leadership of King Ahaz, they were suffering the consequences of his lack of wisdom. They were suffering the consequences of his lack of wisdom as it meant that they were oppressed by the people um, that he, the king, had gone to try and get help to save them from their, their localized enemies. Instead, they were further oppressed. They didn't have the prosperity that they should have had as God's people because he was taking from them so that he might pay people in other nations um, to try and encourage them to give him help. So they're under this oppression and lack of prosperity and because of a lack of peace when this, time, when this was written in the time. So this word comes to them and says, God is going to step in as he did in the days of Gideon. And there may only be a few of you, but God is going to um, honour those that are faithful among his people and achieve his purposes ultimately, which is freedom. You're going to have peace. You're going to know prosperity. You're going to know joy. It's all coming for you. And every boot of the booted warrior, verse 5, nor in the battle tumult, sorry, the battle warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. That's a reference to the things of war. The boots that a warrior would wear would go out and they'd be stained not just with the dirt of the ground but with the blood of their, uh, of their enemies. And their cloaks and their garments would be covered in blood because it was an horrific thing in those days, as it is still today, to go out into battle. But this was hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords and spears and things. And there was blood everywhere. A vivid image of the hideousness of sin. As men would take out their anger against others. And the people at this time were knowing it. Last week we'd said that those in the northern kingdom of Israel had sided with Aram and they'd come in. And they'd killed 120,000 of the people of Judah and taken 200,000 captives. These were horrific times for them. So they knew at first hand the experience of oppression. Evil, wicked oppression like this. But the Lord God is saying to them, I'll bring you joy, I'll bring you prosperity. I'll bring you peace. Because anything associated with war will just be taken and it'll be put away. Burned up, it'll be gone. Wonderful, wonderful promise to a broken, oppressed nation. Notice in this, just a little technical thing. Um, verse 4, verse 5 and verse 6 all begin with the word for. In my version anyway. I didn't check it with all the others, I'm sorry about that. But it says for. That word for is one of the most important words you, you'll find in all of scripture. The word for means because, you know that. It's, it's a reason for something. But notice that what comes before the first four in verse four 
Um, you've got this gladness, this joy, this prosperity, and so on. Because God is the one to break the oppression. God is the one who will bring about their freedom. Then another because. Because every boot. So the very thing of war, which is the thing that brings fear and oppression, that will be done away with. God is going to do that. So there's a, there's a foundation here that we're arriving at. And the foundation ultimately is verse 6. Because. You've got because, because, because. So what comes up uh, before it in the verses before is because of that. And then it's because of this. But then look at verse 6 and the because that's there. Because a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. No other four after that. That's because Christ is the foundation for prosperity, joy, peace. All of those things that are expressed there. Light coming into the darkness of a sinful, broken world. He is the foundation for everything. For this world and for our lives. Because a child will be born to us. And a son will be given to us. And Isaiah, in his understanding of these things, races on from Isaiah 7 and verse 14 that speaks of the child being born of the virgin to here referencing this child and recognizing him as the son and says this one will have this name even from infancy. So it speaks of one who has achieved all of these things and is these things even when he's born. Speaks of the eternity of the one who was coming as given by God. We've got uh, four things here that are that are fundamentals in this passage which touch all of our lives and touch our world. There's the matter of wisdom. There's the matter of um, power. There's the matter of um, protection. And there's the matter of peace and prosperity and putting those two together. Those four things that the world craves. Wisdom and understanding and knowledge of things. Now we can look at this on, on two levels. One is how it touches us individually in our lives, but also as we see it in the world, because the individuals um, create the problems that this world has. And we as sinful human beings in our brokenness contribute to the mess that this world is today. So if we begin, and we'll come and address it, of course, because Christ is the one who addresses all of the trouble. But see the wisdom here that the world craves. And you've had leaders of the nation sitting for the last two weeks, striving for an understanding and a wisdom that would, they would come to some agreement in the matter of uh, global warming. Because they, they would see that as, uh, as a big trouble. And what has been pulled together, some are saying it's not even an agreement at all. So people are struggling with wisdom. We see it on our own lives, don't we? There's this longing to have an understanding of things. And we know that our minds are limited. Some of us are able to grasp things more than others in certain areas of interest and so on. And there's a frustration at not knowing. There are times when we don't understand and it really frustrates us. And it's the same thing for those that are the leaders of the nations. They don't know. They're doing their best with circumstances and bringing knowledge and trying to apply it in wisdom to circumstances. But we all fail because in our brokenness as sinners, we've cut ourselves off from the one who is wisdom, which is God himself. We're longing for power as well, aren't we? <clears throat> we long for power. 
because we know that in power then we have a strength that can overcome and we as people are are, are just so weak we're powerless in our sinfulness we're powerless and there are people in this world who uh, will do all they can with their bodies to make themselves very strong and consider themselves um, unbeatable and uh, we can think of recent boxing matches and some will say that I'm unbeatable and then they get battered they're not they're not it's just we can have the attitude that we're unbeatable that we're all powerful but we're not and we see it not just in the individual and in ourselves and we, we would recognize that but we see it multiplied up in the world and you have the superpowers, as they used to be called, so-called because they have a, a massed amount of weapons that could uh, wipe out the planet, of course. But it's not power. It's not power like the one whose name is given to us here. But we're longing for it because it, this power gives us a sense of security, which is the next thing, security or protection. We're all longing for that, aren't we? We all want a secure place where we know that we are impregnable and untouchable in a sense because there's so much in the world that comes and, and touches us in the practical things of life. Things that attack us from an emotional level as well. These things that come at us, we know we're not untouchable. We're longing for a security and a protection. And the nations of the world are looking for it as well and they just cannot find it. And they'll take it out on other people in the hope that it will bring security for them. And we just see a mess in people's lives and in the world at large. And because there's this longing for this security and protection. And there's also this desire for peace. It must be there with everybody. Though there are some I know in this world who seem so bent on entirely the opposite. But for, I would say, the majority is this longing for peace. And we just have tried and tried and tried. In our own lives, we don't have peace if we're cut off from God because of our sin. There's always something there. As believers, we know that for ourselves because when we distance ourselves from the things of God and the promises of his word, we know a lack of peace that comes in. And for those of us maybe who were saved later in life, we know the change that has come from a feeling of no peace to finding peace in God through his grace. We know this by experience. The world <clears throat> and everyone in it, I suggest, are looking for this, this wisdom and understanding in our own lives and in the world. We're looking for this, uh, this protection that comes about because of power. And we're looking for the peace that's the consequence of it. And all of that together will bring a joy that's here expressed that God himself will bring. And it's only God will bring it. The failure of mankind. I just want to say this quickly just to emphasize the point. In the 20th century, uh, conservative estimates say that there were 203 million fatalities uh, because of the wars. That's people engaged in the wars or uh, sometimes we would say those affected the innocents that were affected by it. 203 million in a century, affected by war. Some have said, and some have done the research, you can find this, uh, an article in the New York Times. Um, back in 2003, somebody said that over the 3,400 years of recorded history, 
that he could research. Humans have been without war for 268 years. And he says, Chris Hedges this is, one billion deaths, one billion deaths due to war in recorded history. One billion people. 268 years of no war. And I have to define what he says war is. War, he says, is when a conflict between peoples um, kills a thousand people. Now we know there's a lot of conflicts where there's less than a thousand people killed. So my argument would be with Chris Hedges, I don't think there's been a time in all of human history where there has been the peace that you're speaking of. We've not been without war and the brokenness that it brings. Why? Because we in our ungodliness and our rejection of God have decided that we can find the way ourselves through our own wisdom to establishing power and protection and peace. And what do we see? The absolute opposite. So that's why God, into the, the ravages of the situation as it was for Judah and Benjamin as the southern kingdom here, knowing all of this, seeing the results of all of this, he then comes in with the message of hope and says, even in the midst of your mess, I will come and I'll bring about something that is glorious, a gladness, a joy that will come through this one. Then we see how this one, the child, the son given, what does it say in verse six? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us because he will be given. Then you will know peace and prosperity and protection and you'll know wisdom and you'll know the wisdom from above because the government will rest on his shoulders. This is ultimately for the world. But I want us to think about <coughs> that primarily next week in the latter verses of this section of Isaiah 9, his rule in this world. But he rules in this world um, today in, in the hearts and lives of those who see in him the answer for the very things that we all crave. <coughs> That's why he's given the name. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Government shift and change. You know, it wouldn't be too long when the oppressing armies that were coming in on Israel at this time, um, Assyria was, had already started to decimate the Northern Kingdom. Assyria would be one of those that Ahaz would reach out to for help. And 2 Chronicles 28 says, he reached out for help to Tiglath-Pileser and all he did was oppress him. Stupid, trying to find help in the, in the strongest, most powerful person in the region at that time. But they would soon, the Assyrians, would give way to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians would soon give way uh, to others. And the history goes on. There's actually on the internet a very fascinating map um, that shows over the course of 500 year periods or 250 year periods, the shift in that whole region of the Middle East of the great uh, empires that have risen and fallen. And you just see this shift of uh, Greece and Rome and Seleucids and um, the Ottoman Empire, which is the most recent. And it's just this, this system of flux. People seeking the things that are spoken about here through their own means 
but never arriving at it. And we see the whole region itself today in the same state of flux. But let's look to the child, the son given, for the answer to all of this. Because he is given, then joy can come through the knowledge of these things. The wonderful counsellor. <clears throat> it's one name, but it's given in four titles. So it's a fourfold um, opening um, by God into the person of who he is and also of who the son, the child, will be. Wonderful counsellor. He's wonderful. There's no one like him. And counsellor there means the one who can give the best of advice personally and to the world. And that's why the government will rest on his shoulders. One day Christ, the one that's spoken of here, will reign on this earth for a thousand years. And the nations, they will recognise his authority. And ultimately, into the eternal ages of God, he will reign forever on the throne. But I'm racing ahead to next week. But here he's described in one of these four facets of his name as the Wonderful Counselor. Those two go together. Some of the versions of the Bible say wonderful, comma, counselor. It's not the sense of it in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is wonderful counselor. He's the greatest, the best, the only one that can bring the wisdom and counsel that we need in the brokenness of our own setting where we're longing to know wisdom. We have to recognize that he's the one who has it because he himself is God. We're all... Loving the people, aren't we, that give us advice. There are people who can give us advice and insight into circumstances. People who've maybe had experience through circumstances that we've, we're only just touching ourselves. We look for it in others. Christ was touched in all things, it says in Hebrews. In all things in this life. So as the one who came as the child stepped into humanity, he knows about this life. So those who put their faith and their trust in him for this joy that is the result of the peace that comes with God first. Peace with God through him. And the prosperity that he brings and the protection that we know in him for, for this life and forever and the joy that's the result of all of that. We run to him, do we not? For advice. He's the one to give us all we need for life. And it's here. And I'm going to bang it again. If we're not in the word of God every single day of our lives. We're trying in our own strength. To bring a wisdom to the mess of the wisdom of this world. And we'll be floundering to know what it is we should do. We take the word of God. And we see in it the one whom he has provided. And he is the one John says in John chapter 1. The word became flesh. Made his dwelling among us. Jesus, when he was here, people said of him that um, in Luke 4, verse 32, it says they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority, greater authority than those that they had regarded with the greatest authority in their religious setting, the, the leaders of the synagogues and the, the Pharisees and others. He says he spoke with an authority greater than that. But I love this phrase from John chapter 7, verse 46. The ones who'd been sent to try and get Jesus and to bring him into custody, they returned and they said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Wonderful counsellor. They went to bring him into custody and they couldn't because the things he said were just 
the absolute wisdom that this world was seeking. And we see that in his words. So my appeal to all of us is to be in the word of God, but always to be in the words of Christ as well. And to see in them the things that touch us in this life and will bring us into the fulfillment of the joy that God longs for those who will receive the child. The second of the names here, or the second of the titles that's given to the name of this child, Mighty God, just speaks of absolute power. Mighty God. There's none to compare. He's a wonderful counsellor, but he's also the mighty God. Now here's a claim to this child who will take on humanity, who will come like one of us to his claims for deity. And it's here spoken of. Throughout Isaiah, God is referring to one who will come and speaking of him as a man. But here we have it right at the beginning. He's not your ordinary man. He's mighty God, all-powerful. The disciples were in the boat with him when the storm came up. And fearful for the lives, they wake the Lord who's asleep in the peace of his knowledge, of his power. And they wake him up and say, do you not care that we're perishing? Of course he does. He stands up and he says, peace be still. And it says, immediately there was a great calm and the storm stopped. And these disciples who'd been with the Lord for however long it was prior to that, they said, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the mighty God who made it all. He's over it all. John, in his gospel account, in chapter 2, verse 11, um, he puts it quite simply. When the Lord changed the water into wine at the wedding feast, he says this. This was the beginning of his signs, and he manifested his glory. Now in John's gospel, John's gospel is unique in the gospels that we have. He gives us seven signs that he says manifest the glory of the Lord. And he's selected them so that we might lift our eyes to see that this man who walked among us was the son of God. And being the son of God is the mighty God. And it culminates in his own resurrection. And prior to that, he's raised Lazarus from the dead who's been dead four days. Here's the mighty God. The child, the son given, the one given to us. This is who he is. Eternal Father, some of us struggle with this and think, well, that messes up our understanding of the triune God, the Godhead, or the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not meant in that sense. The sense in which it's meant and the setting in which it's brought here, remember, this is a people who, who don't know a fatherly figure sitting on the throne. They just know uh, an idiot sitting on the throne, Ahaz, who, because of his choices and his perceived wisdom, has brought on them significant oppression and hardship and so on. So they don't know a father figure. That's what God had said of the king who would sit on the throne. He said, this one will represent me. God had said that of the man who would sit on the throne of his people. He was to be like a father to them in terms of his leadership of them, but also in his protection of them. Eternal Father. So this is the sense of God saying to us, this is who I am and the one that will be given to you. He is the same. Eternal Father. It's speaking of that father-like care. 
Uh, for some of us, that's maybe a difficult thing for us to grasp because maybe our earthly fathers have, have not lived up to the expectations that we would see in God's word of, of what a father should be. But here is the perfect, wonderful, mighty God, the wonderful counselor who's described as the eternal father. He's described as one who has this love for those who are his and will do everything to protect them and to nurture them and to bring them um, from their immaturity to maturity. That's the sense of it here. And what about him? He's eternal. So he's not somebody who's there for a period of time and then is gone. He's not one like the, the kings who sat on the throne. Ahaz would be there for 16 years and they were hideous years. He wasn't one who was going to rise and then be replaced by another because there is no replacing of the Christ because he is the eternal father. The father is the sense of his protecting care for those who are his. Let's not confuse it as saying father, son and holy spirit that confuses the, our understanding of the Godhead. That's, that's not the intention. Jesus said this in John chapter 8 and he was debating with the Pharisees as they were trying to catch him out. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. He knew he was eternal and he knew who he was and why he'd come. Abraham was the one they referred to as their father because they considered that Abraham was the father of the nation of the Jews and here was Jesus saying, I am greater than that one you regard as your ancestral father before Abraham was born I am he'd also accuse them of being children he says your father is the evil one and that's where we are as ungodly people if we're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ we're children of one who is set against the things of God but God has come the child has been given so that we might become children of God prince of peace the prince means the captain or the one who's sitting on the throne. There's no sense here of one who will inherit something. Um, it's, there's just one who is the captain. But we know from what's said in the New Testament that he is heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he will be given everything. And God the Father will give to God the Son everything. It's already his. But there will be this symbolic um, act for all to see that this one in him is all the answer to everything that is a struggle and a trouble. In him are all the glories of what we long for to be found. He is the one to bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace. John, again, says this when he records the words of Jesus, John 14 and 27. Peace I leave with you, spoken to his disciples just before he would go to the cross. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. The world can't give us peace. So that's why Jesus says, not like the world, I will give you peace. It's my peace. I'm giving it to you. And you'll have it. Now these were men who would go forward and know anything but peace in their lives. In the sense of what they would step into. Here were men who would go and suffer hideous deaths. The outworking of sin and antagonism and brutality against the things of God, they would endure all of that. But within their experience, they knew the peace of God that had come to them through Christ. He's the wonderful Prince of Peace. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 says that having been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God. And that's where we have to start in this matter of peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we've rejoiced in that this morning, standing in the grace, standing in the grace of God. And who's introduced us to it? This one, the child, the son given to us, wonderful counsellor, mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. And we are justified through faith in him. That's the fundamental in all of this. The child will be born to us. The son will be given. And there's an inevitable outworking in God's purposes that he will sit on the throne of the earth. But for us today, it's enthroning him in our lives. Because if we don't do that, <clears throat> then if we don't have the faith in him and who he is and his capabilities to bring us everything that we long for, if we're not there with him, through faith, we don't have peace with God. Just in closing, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, just listen to these. It says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Who's the him? It's the Lord Jesus, of course. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The child to be born, the child given. And Isaiah sees him in his maturity, um, having grown up, in a sense. The one who will have the government will be unmistakably all of these four things. Satisfying the need of all humanity and satisfying everything that this world is looking for. Isaiah sees him as that. And Paul says in Colossians that in him the fullness of God dwelt. So this child given, the son born to us, is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He is God himself who has come to be with us. Emmanuel, God is with us, who has come to bring us into the joy that comes through knowing his wisdom, through knowing his power, from knowing the protection that comes through faith in him, from knowing the peace that comes through trusting him with our lives, not just this life, but into eternity. I focused in on John's gospel because I think John is wanting us to understand this as well, that the person who's described here, the, the son of God, is described in all of his fullness here. John is the one who wants us to know about this fullness too. He says in John 1 verse 16, of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. That's those who have exercised that faith to realize that in themselves there is no, no way we have the wisdom that will bring about power and protection and peace. But only in him and in the fact that he gave himself on the cross in what was considered by the world to be absolute weakness there was the power of God demonstrated only by faith exercising faith and trust in that do we come in to receive this fullness of him in our own experience the earlier verses in John 1 say this verses 11 through the 13 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. That wraps it all up, doesn't it? Here's his name. 
So believing in his name is believing in who he is. And he is all of these things to all of humanity. But he is that if they will receive him. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. So for, for us who are believers in who Christ is, for us and for God, we have the joy then, do we not? We should do in his absolute power and that power that brings then the security and protection that we enjoy. And not only that, the peace that comes even in the darkest of world circumstances around us, we have that peace that's in Christ. And not just peace. Shalom in the Greek, and not in the Greek, in the Hebrew, not just speaks of there being a lack of antagonism and lack of conflict, it speaks of prosperity too. And that's what God longs for his people today, that we would know the prosperity that is found in Christ Jesus. Paul was uh, the one who said in Ephesians as well, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the fullness of God given to us. He can dwell in us through faith. Let's pray.